0: whole Trinity is involved in this, Lord, that you have poured out your whole self, you revealed to us as our Father, you revealed your Son to us, and you've given us your Spirit. We pray that you would exalt yourself, you glorify yourself to us today, Lord, that your Son would be marvelous to our sight, Your Spirit would provoke our hearts to love. We ask for your help. The next two sermons in our series in Matthew are going to address hypocrisy. Now, culturally, hypocrisy is claiming to have some moral standard or beliefs, which one's own behavior does not conform to. You hold people to a certain standard, but then you yourself do not do it. The hypocrisy that Jesus is going to be addressing is a bit more subtle than that, because, you know, maybe you can look at someone's life And they, they say they behave a certain way, and then they tend to act a certain way, but deep down the motivations for their actions are what Jesus is going to call, um, to account. It's subtle. It's different. Jesus is not talking about you say one thing and you do one thing, is you say one thing and you do one thing, but the reason why you're doing it, that's the issue. The word hypocrite comes from Greek plays. It means actor. When someone acts a part, and, you know, you're some, Devious villain, right? You're not a villain right? as a character. You're, you're, you yourself, as an actor, are a fairly nice person. You're not a villainous person, but you put on all the trappings and all the actions and all the words of a villain, but you're not really a villain. And so the same way, Jesus says, you're going to put on all the trappings of being religious and being right with God, but inside you actually are not. You are just acting. Now, believe me, the fact that I, Levi Gill, preaching on hypocrisy not lost on me. Well, ironic, right? I think this would be true for like anybody talking about hypocrisy because you know your own heart and you know the struggles that you have in your own heart that some days you feel like you're just doing it but not feeling it. The teachings of Christ are like a scalpel or like TNT depending on Depending on the day, sometimes it's, just, it's sharp and it gets at one thing, or it just blows your heart into a million pieces. When, I, I, as we've been going through the series, like I've just been every sermon, through the Sermon on the Mount is just conviction, 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 conviction. And I realized, like, like, I never feel this much conviction while I'm reading through the Sermon on the Mount, through my Bible reading throughout the year. It's like, oh, the Sermon on the Mount, what a great sermon! And it dawned on me, this Sermon on the Mount, or you may you can say, all the teachings of Christ, or all the teachings of the Bible. They're a fairly good read if you're thinking about someone else, <laughs> but as soon as like the, God actually starts pointing it at you, and you're reading these, and you're wondering how, it, how you measure up, or how you are, how you are to these scriptures, and what needs to be fixed in your own heart, you begin to squirm, right? And then you want to read it a little faster, to get through it. Well, I've been squirming all week long, because, <laughs> because. At the heart of what's going on here, Jesus is challenging my motivation. Like, why am I doing what I'm doing? So I stand here as a man in need of a savior. In the great need of the Holy Spirit to come and just help us right now, to help break through the hardness of our own hearts. The Holy Spirit would do his work today as we look at his word. It's encouraging in the book of Hebrews. When the book of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament. Paul says, the Spirit says, is saying. So even though he said it thousands of years before, he's saying it now. And that's the same thing right now. Even though Jesus spoke these words 2,000 years ago, he's saying them now to us. So let's open to Matthew chapter 6. So the first verse is going to be a command. and it's going to be the overarching command. And then he's going to give three examples. Of where his command is going to affect you. At least these people. We'll get to that. So it's going to be a command followed by these three examples. So his command is beware. You need to beware. Beware practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So, for example, two thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Example, second example. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your inner room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. Pray then like this: Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then his third example. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in the steel, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So as I said, chapter six starts with a command, and what precedes it are examples to kind of support what he's commanding. He's talking about hypocrisy, and Jesus wants to save you from it. So he's calling us to give constant attention to this matter. Like, beware and keep being aware. Like, this is going to be a problem. Keep on it. Don't just think, I've got it. And then move on with your whole life not thinking about it ever again. This is something that's going to be, as it were, crouching at your door, always trying to challenge you. So be continually on guard. And give mind to the fact that you are going to be tempted in this way. You're going to be tempted to do right things, do good things, with a purpose, being seen by people. And this is contrary to what Jesus wants his people to be. We belong to a different kingdom. We belong to a different king. We act a different way. Now, Jesus points to three particular acts of righteousness that, in that culture, were like the pinnacle of good works, good deeds, righteousness. And the religious leaders had turned these three things into spectacles. So the three of them would be. Alms giving, like giving to someone in need. So alms giving, praying, and fasting. Those were the big three. They were seen as like they're the kind of like the so-called three pillars of Judaism. Like you do these things and you're a righteous person. Now, for example, um, we have texts from Jewish groups that lived far from the temple. They're called the Diaspora. they're like, you know Jews get captured, they get dragged away, and they get planted in faraway countries. And they have writings to help teach and instruct themselves on in how they are to behave. And one of those is called the Tobit. And in Tobit 4.10 it says, quote, Almsgiving delivers from death and keeps you from going into darkness. And then later it says, Prayer with fasting is good, but better from death and purges away every sin. An, a Pharisee teacher writing not very long after the ministry of Christ, so... Jesus died in probably the 30s or 40s, and like a few years later, this guy was writing teachings to the Jews, and he states, as water extinguishes a blazing fire, so almsgiving atones for sin. Did you catch that? These good works, and yes, they are good works. Jesus calls his people to give their resources to people in need. He calls us to do that. But they had taken these good works, and they've actually they considered them atoning, like, I've done wrong things, but, you know, I've done these good things, so God's going to forgive me the past things that I've done. And so they were considering the basis on the right standing before God by the things that they were doing. Okay, enough about Jews. <laughs> in the twi- you know, first century, let's talk about us. Here we are as 21st century Westerners, and we're tempted to think in the same way. I bet you, if you go out and just start randomly pulling people, and you ask them, you know, after you've gotten over, do you believe in God, but God exists? And you ask them, if you're going to stand before God and give a reckoning for your life, and there's heaven and there's hell, why? where do you think you're going and why? I think in America, like most people they talk to who they don't understand the gospel, they say, well, I've done all these good things. So I'm really not as bad as that person over there. So somehow their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, and therefore they deserve deserve heaven. Now, I'll turn this question to you. You, ponder. So in those quiet moments, when you're walking to your car, you're folding your laundry, or you wake up at 2 a.m. at night, right, and your heart is troubled and you're having a little crisis, and you wonder um, if you're heading in the right direction, if, if you're all right with God, what gives you peace of mind? What tells you you're okay? So if answers like, oh, but I go to church, or I read my Bible, or I give, or all the things that I'm doing make me all right with God, and your answer is not Jesus makes you all right with God, then you are on shaky ground. Because if your basis, is, if you're standing before God is on that basis, Jesus is about to tell you that you can still do all those things. And be doing it for the wrong reason and therefore have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Good works as a result of a changed heart. Good works do not change a bad heart. You can do good things in such a twisted way that you do them for your own sake. So they're really not good works at all. You've twisted them, you've warped them, you've made them all about you. It becomes self. Worship. In fact, Jesus says, These people are doing it because they want to be worshipped. You can do good deeds because you want to be worshipped. Look at verse 2. When you give the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Now, that word. Praise, it's a weighty word. Not the way that we use it, like your boss praises you for a job well done. right? Okay, that's a compliment. not necessarily praise in the way they mean it. To the Jews, to say that you're going to praise something means you're going to glorify it. You're going to marvel at it. You're going to use words and express how great someone is. That word praise, read it throughout the Bible, always refers to God, except right here, when people are trying to get praise for themselves. They're putting themselves in the place where God should be, in people's worship and adoration. Look, what a great person this is. How marvelous is this person? God alone should be praised, because he alone is valuable enough, holy enough, pure enough deserve such worship and adoration. Everyone else is a cheap knockoff. So the point of these good words, these good works, is that you wanted to be worshipped and adored by people. We want our own worship. So Jesus does what a jeweler does. You want to be worshipped? Well, let me take a look. Are you worthy of worship? So like a jeweler would take a diamond, take a look at it, say like, Yeah, so now that I'm peering into your inner depths, let me see. What do I see? Diamond? Like muddy rock. So I grew up in church. This, of course, is going to cut close to home. Because, and Brianna and I, we talk about this all the time. Because we went through this as kids growing up in the church. And now, probably my daughters are going to go through this growing up in the church. And I think every kid who grows up in the church inherently starts out as a really good hit. I teach at a Christian school, and I see a bunch of kids professing to be Christians, and I think some of them are, but I'm thinking the chances of it being 100% are not really good, because here's the thing. I call it social capital, so they're in a culture where the cultural pressure says behave a certain way, and when you do, you get praised, and when you don't, you get punished. Okay, no, it's not a bad thing to get praised and punished, praised for doing what's right, punished for what's wrong. But at the same time, what's the motivation? Okay, so now fast forward, this is what you notice. So then a bunch of kids who seem like really good Christian kids, they go off and they go get a job and they go to college. And suddenly there's another type of cultural, cultural pressure to conform a different way. And now you begin to see like the quality what, what was in the heart. So when you're at, you know, in a church environment or you're in a Christian school environment. You say, behave this way. And then you go out and you realize you're a freak, right? That you're going to want to do things and not leave things, say things, you don't do things that everyone else thinks is normal. Right? And so there's pressure, like, why don't you do that? Why did you do that? Now, the question was, is there genuine conversion in the heart? Are you genuinely a follower of Christ or were you just conforming socially? Because that was what, they're very adaptable. You're just adapting. And then they walk away. And then, like the really good Christian kids, they get to be the youth leader, assistant. They get all these jobs, right? Because they were good kids. All right? And, and that's, okay, so that's like kids to adults. But this is true for even adults. You can be in the church for 70 years and be acting the part of the hypocrite. That's why you need Jesus' teaching to come in like TNT. Just drill right in, put in TNT, and blow your little heart apart. Show it to you. You'd be like the rich young ruler. Jesus, I've done everything. But I'm sure there's one last thing. What is it? And Jesus says, wrong path, buddy. <laughs> you, you obey all the commandments. Let's try the first one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love me above all else? Go sell everything. And there's idolatry in that heart. He likes the wealth. He likes the benefits that come from the wealth. He won't love his God above all else. So Jesus is calling us out. Now, the evidence of hypocrisy. So he's warned you about hypocrisy, the evidence of it. When you give to the needy. Now, first of all, Jesus is assuming that his disciples will give to the needy. Not if you give to the needy, when you give to the needy. It is an act of mercy. When you see someone in need, you're moved to respond even at the cost of your own well-being. You're willing to part with your own resources. Money. Money which would give you security in the future, or a vacation, or a little extra something. We all have financial goals, right? right? But you're willing to part with those goals, those aspirations, those dreams, when you see someone in need. And the Bible tells us that one of the reasons why we have abundance as God's people, one of the reasons why we have abundance is that we would be able to help others in their need. So for example, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is telling the Corinthians, you know, last time I was here, you said you were gonna you were willing to give to the needs of the Jews back in Jerusalem. There's a famine, they're starving. About a year ago you said you're gonna give it, and by the way, I'm coming, is your gift ready? And and he starts kind of talking about motivation. So, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 8, if you want to follow along there, Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. So, Paul's not commanding people to give, love compels you to give. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ah. Okay? So, what's, you know, why are you going to give? Because look at Jesus. Look at who he is and what he's done. And you're going to be like Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that by his poverty, you might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also desired to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had nothing to lack. So he's saying, you have abundance in this moment? Share it. If you don't have abundance... And you're not figuring, you know, you're not going to be able to pay your bills, and you can't feed your kids. I mean, you don't necessarily have to give. But in your abundance, the root one of the reasons God gave you abundance is that you could show mercy. Jump a little bit to verse 6 in the next chapter. It says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, now, are you concerned about not having your needs met in the future? So you're going to give, but, you know, maybe a salmon's going to come our way. God? So should I have this extra resources? He says in verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In other words, God will meet your need in that moment. And so he closes it. So as he closes this argument, Paul basically says, and at the end of the day, it is God who gave you abundance. And it is God who put love in your heart. So you gave it to the others. And when people receive it, yes, they will be glad that you gave it. But they're going to glorify God. Because they will see God is the ultimate giver of that gift. our giving is motivated by love. That's why we give. The same love that Jesus Christ had shown us. But, yes, we are to be merciful, loving people who give of their own security. And we trust God for our provision. The best example of this like analogy came from Randy Alcorn. He wrote, you might have read his book, Heaven. We did that four or five years ago heaven, he also writes a lot about treasure and money, convicting if you really want to be convicted. Anyways, I was listening to a message, and he compared it to, God gives you, you're a FedEx driver, and you have a bunch of FedEx packages. A bad FedEx driver keeps all the FedEx packages. Okay. After a week of not delivering packages, the manager comes and say, where are all the packages? He said, they weren't for me. You're the FedEx driver, right? You were supposed to be delivering packages the whole time. How do you not see that? Like, you're Christians who are supposed to be giving and loving and serving and giving your lives for other people. It should be a natural impulse. You know what you're supposed to do. That stands in contrast of hypocrites who sound um, trumpets as they're about to give. Okay, now, the Sermon on the mount is filled with hyperbole, Just to make sure, like, to really draw out the truth. And so it's kind of like, is the blowing of trumpets hyperbole? There's no record that we ever have of like someone blowing trumpets, which does not mean it happened, right? It could have. But sometimes it's just the way you behave. It speaks loudly, right? You know, have you ever like, like, oh, this needs to be done. I'll wait till someone's there so they can see me do it. Like, I could do this right now, or I could wait until and then maybe cough <laughs> right when you're doing whatever right so just like some like humans right like just making it so it's like like not being obvious here but did you see that right so that's the point they're acting in such a way that's really obvious so Jesus says Hey, what did you want? Attention from people? Praise of people? Okay, you got it. They notice. They're praising you. They think you're great. But your father doesn't. Because they have received their reward in full. That's all you're after. You got it. They want the perception that they have earned favor with God. That God really likes them because they're generous people. You like me too? And it's simply one commentator said on this quote Jesus recognizes how easy it is for sinners to engage in worthy philanthropic and even religious activities it's so easy to act this stuff out less in order to do what is right than to actually be admired for doing what is right so if being generous is more important so excuse me if being thought generous is more important than being generous if being Reputation for prayerfulness is more important than praying when no one but God is listening. When fasting is something that we engage in only if we can distinguishly talk about it, then these acts of become piety become impiety. The fundamental way to check out how we sound in each of these areas is to perform these acts quietly so that none but God knows that we are doing them. So be generous. But let no one know that you're giving. Insist even that the recipients be silent. Pray more in secret than you do in public. By all means fast, but tell no one that you're doing it. So the test is you wanna you wanna survey your own heart and see if you're acting more the part of the hypocrite or the genuine follower of Christ? How much of this are you doing in secret? How much are you praying by yourself as opposed to just praying? or at a meal, or when there's other people around, when when you're obliged to How much are you giving in secret, where no one knows a thing about it? Or are you only giving when the collection plate comes around? So are you attentive to the needs that are around you? So Jesus says, if you're a hypocrite, and you do things in secret, you'll be like someone starving for oxygen. You won't, your flame won't hold up. You need oxygen. You need people to see you. Are you not going to be motivated to do good works? That is a sign of a hypocrite. So what is the cure? So the point is that Jesus says this stuff, and you start getting convicted about something. What is the cure for a hypocrite? The first comes from the entire structure of the sermon, of the mouth chapter 5 through chapter 7. The very first step is that is the acknowledgement that apart from God's power in your life, you are completely destitute of this thing called righteousness. Where do the sermon start? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Why do you hunger and thirst? I mean, why are you hungry? You're hungry because you don't have food. You're thirsty because you don't have water. You hunger and thirst for righteousness because you do not have righteousness. The Apostle Paul, I think, is a premier example of one who thought he had righteousness only to find out that he didn't. We read from Philippians chapter 3, the scripture reading today that Paul had both the pedigree and the actions the back of the fact that he's okay with God. I was a Pharisee. I was a Benjamite. Is that Benjamite? Yeah, Benjamite. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Zealous, prosperous. Everything you think that someone who's earned right favor with God would have, he had it all. Like if people started like stacking up against like who, you know, in their game, who is like the one that God likes the most, and Paul will be like, <laughs> not boast but um, I've got it all. Right. So then Jesus, then Paul comes face to face with Jesus, kind of like the rich young ruler came face to face with Jesus, and realized completely on the wrong track. So he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Jesus. Indeed, I count Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Here's what's important. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You need righteousness. And the only place you're going to get it is from God by faith in Christ Jesus. It's an issue of source. The source of your good deeds, the source of your righteousness, can only come from God working in and through you. God gives us his spirit that produces fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God produces it in you. Otherwise, we would never have produced fruits. This truth should not be overlooked because as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you're being honest with yourself, you're going to fail at every checkpoint. Fail, fail, fail if you're trying to do it by yourself. But never fear because Christ has never failed on a single one of these counts. He is of a different quality, a quality that we do not possess, but a quality that if you give your life to him, he will produce in you. And it will be his righteousness in you. God saves us. He transforms us. He produces fruit in us. So at the end of the day, the glory belongs to God. Now, Matthew 5.16. Back up a bit. Let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works, and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Okay, now, first of all, back up. Wait, Jesus, didn't you just say, don't let your works be seen? And now you're saying, let your works be seen. Like, okay, which one is it? Okay, motivation, people. That's what he's getting at. Over here, he's saying, yeah, you want your works to be seen, so you'll be glorified. Okay, if that's your temptation, do it in a secret. But if you want your father to be glorified, then let your works be seen so that they will glorify your heaven. If you recognize that these good works does not come for you, but it comes from your father, then do them so that they might so you can give glory to your father. The glory your father, not you. Now remember, in the in that culture, father is more than just your parents, right? So I think keep keeps saying this every time. I think it said this like four or five times this year. Because it, it helped me so much when I was thinking through some of these passages. Like, if your father was a farmer you were a farmer if your father was a carpenter you were a carpenter you if your father was a good father he'd instill in you the qualities the good qualities that were in himself and then you would follow in his footsteps and do the things he'd have you do right so in the same way because god is our father we're going to behave like our father or we're going to do the good works of our father and at the end of the day they'll say what a good father father also implies New birth. Because he's not your father unless you're born John 1. Heart of stone pulled out. He puts in a heart of flesh. He is now your father. The first thing to know that any righteousness that you will ever do ultimately will come. Second thing to remember, and this comes from the immediate passage, is that we are to remember that we're seeking the reward of our Father. The reward of our Father is a greater reward. But we've settled for less. Oftentimes, when you go for the praise and worship of people, you've settled for less. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We are instilled, we are built with the desire to be known, to be loved, to be accepted, to be treasured. And it's not a wrong desire, it's just a misplaced desire. What is probably, okay, G.S. Lewis, his most famous essay is called The Way of Glory. And I read it. It's great. Because if you understand his biography, he was an atheist. Who became a reluctant Christian and just had to wrestle through so many ideas and just come to terms with them. And one of them was this whole thing reward. This weird word called glory. What is glory? What do you say? Like, glory is either really vain, like people who just want, I want glory. Or it's luminescence. Like you can think of like a light bulb. Like, Right? I want to be glory. You know, I want glory. I want to be like a light bulb. It's like I don't get it. So he, he, his kind of his autobiography on this is this weight of glory. And he uses this example where when you settle, he says, I, I don't think the problem is that when you look at the unblushing promise of reward and the degree of what rewards are promised to you, it doesn't seem that the problem is that you don't desire is that you don't desire enough, you, you stop too soon, that you're like a child in the slum, making mud cakes, when there's an offer to sit in a palace with a king on the seaside. Like, which one do you want? The the slums or the palace? And he says, quote, What high thoughts may happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please? There will be no room for vanity then. She will be free from the miserable illusion that it is her doing, with no taint of what we should now call self-approval. She will most innocently rejoice in the thing that God has made her to be, and in that moment, which heals her old inferiority complex forever, will also drown her pride. The promise of glory is the promise. Almost incredibly and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive God's examination and shall find approval, shall please God. Please God to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as his artist delights in his work as a father in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or a burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but it is so. Do you see what he's seeing? That the work of Christ both exalts the soul and shatters your pride that you were more loved than you possibly realized, but yet your pride is crushed because you were so unbelievably corrupt that you were loved by the Father, And if you truly grasp this, and really this grasping is only something that comes by God through his Spirit. Romans 5 says, God's love is poured into our hearts if you grasp this by the Spirit, then you will desire to please God more than all the others because you'll love him above all the others. There will be no human approval that you will need because you have God's, your Father's, unconditional love always and forever. There will be no achievement that you have to obtain in this life, no social rung, no promotion, no ladder that you need to climb because you already have The divine accolade of your Father in Christ. You don't have to use people because Christ has given Himself for you. So, when God is your heart's desire and ultimately your worship, then then, and only then are you actually free to love people. Because you don't need them. You have everything you need, and then you're free to give. Christ himself is the example of this very teaching. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus loved to serve the Father. He gave up his prerogatives of the station, all the comforts that was his, he gave everything for us. And the Father has great reward So let's celebrate that, as we're invited. Is really good to help you. So he'll bring stuff up. You know, last week there was a sermon on loving your Enemies This week I was like, given plenty of opportunity to practice it. <laughs> it was a hard week, but the whole time like it's like that resonating like love your enemies, pray for those first. So the hope is that I ask God to help you with this, that you'll bring up, bring to light things, actions, attitudes, which you're acting the part of the hypocrite, you want to be seen as one thing that you really aren't. But in that, He'll help you. He'll fight with you, He'll fight for you. The Spirit is there interceding for you. And it's on that basis we rest. For as often as you eat this bread you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. then You'll have your reward with him. Lord, again we thank you that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us; that while we were still hypocrites, you loved us. And you love us. That you're changing us into the image of your son from one degree of glory to next. Lord, and this is of you. Lord, help us hold fast to that. Produce fruit in our lives. Let us forsake hypocrisy. Let us be open and transparent with our brothers and sisters. Lord, areas that we are struggling, not pretend like we aren't. Lord, create here in Redwood Christian Fellowship a community of people But who know that we struggle with hypocrisy, but we help each other through it by pointing each other to Christ, pointing each other to the eternal reward that we have with you, Father. We thank you. We love you. Be with us.